So glad to be with you this morning. If I haven't had the chance to uh, formally introduce myself, I'm Joe. I serve as the lead pastor here at New Freedom, and I just want to uh, thank you for being here today. If we haven't connected yet, then there's a connection card in your bulletin. You can fill that out. We have a free gift we'd like to give you after the service if you just take it to the information desk. But before we get into the message, I, I just need to give a shout out to, to our team. Uh, Pastor Seth had an amazing message last week. If you missed it on Mercy, you missed it. That, that, was, that was amazing. I, uh, I got a, uh, a little notification on my phone when we flew into Honduras that I, I could have travel pass on my phone, which would give me uh, half a gigabyte of data, talk and text and that kind of thing. And Wi-Fi was real spotty, so I went ahead and said yes to that. And about three hours after the service here, I was able to watch the service back. And I got all the way to the end of the service. I had just got through the service, and it said, your travel pass has expired for the next 24 hours. You've used all your data. So in case you're wondering, it takes about a half a gigabyte of data to stream our service for an hour, just, just so you want to know that. Uh, but uh, wonderful time in the Lord last week. Uh, the worship was amazing. Just to so appreciate the team uh, coming together, uh, not just the, the paid staff, but also the many volunteers that we have around here that uh, bless this congregation and allow me to do some things uh, that I otherwise wouldn't be able to do if you guys weren't so faithful to the Lord. So thank you so much for that. We are uh, several parts into a 15-part series. Now, how many churches do a 15-part series, right? I mean, that, that, that can be pretty amazing. But we are looking at the Song of Ascent, the 15 psalms between 120 and 134. But I promise you, we're going to do half of them now and half of them in the fall. And so uh, this is uh, a section of Scripture that uh, not only hearkens uh, to a form of prayer, but I like the Psalms so much because, did you know this? The Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament scriptures we find in the New Testament. So Jesus and his disciples would have looked at the Psalms as the prayer book or the, the hymn book of their day. It would have been the songs that they knew, many of them by heart. And so I love looking back at these songs because we see so many of them dotting the pages of the New Testament. And so by that fact, I think it's important for us to see our parallel with the authors of these Psalms, especially the Songs of Ascent, because they were pilgrims just past passing through for a time on their way to the city of God. You and I are pilgrims just passing through for a time on our way to a city whose builder and maker is God. We're just passing through this way, and when, when we get to this place that we are able to worship, what happens is that our hearts get so inclined to the excitement and the enthusiasm that God has given us this privilege that we can worship him. I want you to feel that emotion as we read these psalms, especially Psalm 124 this morning. That's where we're going to go is Psalm 124, a song of ascents. There's a phrase in the second verse that I'm going to ask you to, to say with me in just a moment, and I'll explain to you why. There's just one little phrase. It's just a few words, uh, but it's, it's repeated from the first verse to the second verse. And when I get there, I'm going to ask us to, to recite it all together, and then I'll uh, finish reading the rest of the psalm. There's only eight verses in this psalm. Psalm 124 and verse 1 says, If the Lord had not been on our side... Let all of Israel say. Now, all of Israel have, has been uh, the, the moniker for the people of God. 
So when you see Israel, you see that Israel were the people of God. They were the people of God. They are the people of God. They will be the people of God. You and I have had the privilege as Gentile believers that we have been grafted into the vine or we have been brought into the family of God. And by uh, associating with and taking on the name of Jesus, we are and have become also the people of God. And so when they would sing this song as they're traveling up the hill to the city of Jerusalem, they would let someone read it first, and then they would say, let all of Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side. So we're going to say that together. Uh, let me read verse 1 and verse, the first part of verse 2 we're going to say together. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side. Think about that. Let that sink in a minute. It's not so much that... Uh, we are aligned with the right natural allies in this life. It's good to have friends. It's important to have partnerships. It's nice when you can get along with people. But it's not so much important on the external of who likes you and who doesn't like you. As long as you're on the Lord's side and the Lord is on your side. If it had not been for the Lord who had partnered up and been on our side, it says this, when people attacked us, I want you to see the poetry here in this, in this psalm. This is interesting. The, these songs were written uh, uh, more like poems. And so they, they kind of have an interplay between natural things and supernatural things. They're going to first talk about people's attacks, but then it gets much larger into some supernatural attacks. Look at what it says. It, it, when people attacked us, verse 3, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. Now, just let's break that down a minute. People cannot swallow other people alive. This is a metaphor. This is a little bit of a play on words. And he gets this, this thing first that people have been attacking. And a lot of times we think that people are our enemies. But the Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers or principalities and spiritual wickedness in heavenly hosts in dark places. So your enemy is not the person that is causing you friction, right? Like Pastor Sue says, if you look at another person and say that they're your enemy, you're looking at the wrong enemy. There are not people that are our enemies. People can cause us trouble. People can cause us heartache. They can cause us heartburn. They can cause us turmoil. But it's really not people. He's saying that if it hadn't been for God, then these people would have swallowed us alive. And he's really talking about something bigger than people. We'll look into it here in just a minute. Verse 4, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept us away. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken. We have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Church, where does our help come from? Our help doesn't come from our bank account being full. Our help doesn't come because we are American citizens and we live in the greatest nation and people of all the earth. That, that's good. I thank God for it. I came through TSA this past week and the, the gentleman, the TSA agent handed me my, my passport. He said, welcome home, Mr. Schutz. I said, I am so glad to be home. He smiled and said, I hear that a lot. <laughs> 
it is wonderful, but that's not where our help comes from because there are moments that you find yourself utterly helpless regardless of your citizenship here on earth. You can find yourself in a very helpless situation. I felt a little bit of that as I came through the, the, uh, the line getting out of the check bags from our flight from Atlanta to Honduras and I walked through and, and uh, it looked pretty good. I'm, I'm walking through there until they open up this gate and there's about 500 Honduran people all waiting past that line. Like they can't come past that line, but as soon as I go past, they're all standing there. Now, they, they weren't really scary people, but I was a little bit nervous. And so I felt very helpless. I felt like, wow, I'm kind of exposed here. I'm, I'm kind of maybe in a danger zone if somebody wanted to do harm. But that's not where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. And so what we find in this psalm is we find a witness, a person who is testifying about God's provision and God's help. And the active role of every Christ follower is to be a witness, not an apologist. We don't have to apologize for God. Now, there's a whole uh, form of theology called apologetics, and, and it's not apologizing at all. It's actually giving a defense for why you believe what you believe. And apologetics is wonderful. I love apologetics. I think it's something that we should be ready to give a defense. In fact, First Peter tells us to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us a reason for our hope. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is we don't have to apologize for God. We are not God's defenders. How I many know God can fight his own fights? The battle's not ours. Even though we want to take it into our hands many times, the battle's not ours. The battle belongs to the Lord. So we find this, this witness, this Christian witness. And here's the amazing thing. The wonder of this psalm is not in the fact of, of we all have these questions, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, uh, if you haven't had that question, you haven't lived very long because, because I have that question all the time. God, why did this happen? Why, why did this person live so righteous and so upright and, and they have a, a failure, they have a fall, there's a tragedy in their life, but another person lives riotous life and it seems like everything turns out good for them. The, the, the mystery of this psalm is not in the question, why do bad things happen? But the wonder in this psalm to me is how can people sing the praises of God? How can people enjoy the goodness of God? How can people be traveling to a place of worship despite their setbacks, their sickness, their poverty, and their problems? How can people be in that kind of low position and yet they still praise God? That, to me, is a wonder. And that's what I experienced this past week. I, uh, many of you asked, how would your trip in Honduras go? It, it was amazing. We took 100 printed Spanish manuals for a, a series that, that we led. Uh, Pastor Jones and I, we led a, a two-day uh, pastors conference, pastors and leaders conference. We took 100 manuals printed in Spanish so that they could fill in the blanks and follow along. And here's what I learned about the Honduran people. You will fill in every blank on that page. <laughs> I mean, don't get Pentecostal on them and start skipping around or nothing like that. They will call your attention back. No, 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 you didn't do that. You didn't do that. Our first session, uh, we looked up, and we weren't, we weren't sure how many would come. The, the, the uh, uh, interpreter that was there with us, he said probably somewhere around 100, but the weather's calling for some rain, so we're not really sure. And after our first session, we'd given out all 100 books, and there were more people coming in, like on Honduran time. I mean, like we started at 2, but they're coming in at 3.30. I'm like, you all must go to New Freedom Church or something. <laughs> but they started sharing booklets. 
Husbands and wives started saying, here's, here's mine, we'll, we'll just share this one. And they started giving these booklets to one another. And it was so heartwarming to see that they were just a sponge. They don't get conferences very often. And they were just a sponge. And they wanted it. And Saturday we were able to, to go and, and visit. We visited seven churches in all. And uh, for those of you who have ever contributed to one of these little placard cards that has a child's uh, face on it and says you can feed a child for, you know, $30 or whatever, I want to testify to you that's real. We went into this church, there's a cinder block building with a, a lean-to a metal top. All of the, the restrooms were outside. There was no indoor plumbing in the places we were at other than the place we stayed. And there was a, a pallet box of food in the corner. It was dry food. And I, it drew my attention. I said, what, what is that box? They said, yeah, that's World Mission. There are several kids in our neighborhood that are sponsored by people all around the world. And that's the food that they send us every 30 days. We have to go and pick it up and we bring it here. And, uh, and I said, well, but wait a minute. That box, how many kids do you have sponsored? They said about 10. I said, how many kids are you feeding here on a Saturday? They said about 60. These kids have maybe one meal a day. And can I tell you, they are the happiest, most laughing, most contented children I have ever been around. The wonder is not, oh, poor little kids, look what they don't have. The wonder to me is how can they be so thankful and so grateful? There's no smartphone, there's no tablet, there's no internet. They have almost nothing and yet they have Jesus, which means they have everything. And that was my grand takeaway of the whole trip was how can these people who have so little be so content, be so happy, be so joy-filled? It just stuck with me. Uh, we went to a medical mission. There was a missionary uh, group that came in to do a medical mission we weren't part of, but they were staying in our complex. And so uh, after our conference, we said, hey, do you mind if we kind of tag along? We'd like to see what you do. They said, oh, absolutely, come, come and be part of it. And um, I had just preached at a church the night before. And uh, after preaching, there's this lady in the back, and she's about 30 years old, and she, she uh, said, you know, through your message, uh, it really touched my heart, and uh, I prayed with the pastor back here, and I gave my life to Jesus. So I was rejoicing that, that someone said yes to Jesus. We went on the, 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 the medical mission the next day, and they set up these clinics. They have three nurses in one clinic, and then they go into the room to three doctors. And then, I'm sorry, we kind of tricked them a little bit. We had a third clinic. It was called the prayer clinic. Because if you let them go right from the doctor to the pharmacy clinic, a lot of them will just leave. So we said, no, 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 you got to go to the, the, the prayer clinic. And so they go to the prayer clinic. 180 people were seen that day, children and adults. 39 first-time decisions for Christ out of that clinic. 39. So here's how the Lord will humble you. I got to thinking about it. Lord, all I did was unload boxes off of this truck I can't, I can't translate, I can't do anything, although I did learn some Spanish. They, they gave me two words. They said, uh, you need to direct traffic. I said, well, how do I direct traffic? He said, okay, you need to tell them to go down there to get in line, and that means haya. And when they get up to your line, you need to tell them to sit right there. It means haku, haki, I'm sorry, haki. So I was doing this all day, haya, haki. It's like, it's like practicing my karate. Like, oh, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I, I did learn something else Spanish, baño. Where's the baño? That's the bathroom. <laughs> Where's that? <laughs> what is it? It got me there. Trust me. I mean, <laughs> they were probably laughing at me like that American guy wants to use the bathroom. Yeah, they took me. 
But when we, when we were leaving that medical mission, this little boy came up. He was about nine years old. And we had seen his family, his mom, dad, and his little sister. And he went up to one of the workers loading the truck, and he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a big wad of their dollar bills, which is like a nickel to us, one of them. And he probably had 35 cents in all of them. And he just, he was saying, gracia, gracia, gracia. And he was trying to hand us his money because he was so thankful that we had come to his little village. And my heart just swelled with thanksgiving of God, you have given us so much. And yet we overlook so many blessings and they have nothing and they love you so much. But the Lord really humbled me because I said, Lord, all I did was unload boxes out of this truck and 39 people got saved. I preached my heart out last night. One person got saved. And the Lord said, maybe you just need to do a little more sweat equity labor in the church. <laughs> so if you see me on the servant line, you know, you know why. But none of us are above serving, are we? It's what we're called to. It's what, what much of the message was last week. And, and so this psalm is talking not about a person's life that went well, but someone is saying, you know what? If God hadn't been there, I don't know if I could have made it through this. If God hadn't been on our side, we would have been swallowed up. Here's what they're saying. In other words, is this. If you think this looks bad, you ought to see what it would look like if God hadn't been here. That's what they're saying. If the Lord hadn't been on our side, we'd have been swallowed up. This is a testimony psalm of a person who says, God is my help. I want to share two testimonies with you this morning. We, we shared a couple weeks ago, um, just spontaneously, a testimony. I gave a microphone to, to Grandma Schutz, and she testified, and it just blesses my heart to hear how God is moving in someone's life. And I wish that we had the time and the, the opportunity that we could share the mic around and, and let everybody testify. But I want, to, I want to let two people testify to us today from their life. One of them's name is Corey Ten Boone. Many of you probably heard of her. She wrote a, a, a famous book called The Hiding Place. But Corey Ten Boone was a Dutch watchmaker. She and her family were Christians, but they decided to help out Jews during the Second World War. They would hide secretly these Jews in her bedroom. There was right behind her bed a hidden um, room in the wall that they could put up to six people in. And they had ventilation, they had a bell that would be rung, all, all kinds of uh, system that they had installed to help out Jews. Kind of like a underground railroad, if, if you want to say that, to, to uh, fleeing Jews. And it's chronicled in her book, The Hiding Place. Once she, she references the, the help of God, the providence of God, in that uh, in, there had to be ration coupons during the war for you to get food. There was no other way to get food unless you had a coupon. She and her family knew that there's no way they could stretch their rations so far that they could feed all of the, 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 the asylum seekers or the people seeking some help and refuge from the Nazis. And so she had a friend at the ration office. She said what happened that day was so miraculous because she went to her friend to ask for the rations and there was five in her family. She said, when I went there, I was terrified because I knew that I needed more than five, but I didn't know how to ask for them. And so on the tip of my tongue, when he said, how many ration cards do you need? The tip of my tongue, she said, was the number five. But blurting out over my lips was the, the number 100. And she was shocked that it even came out. To which he smiled and winked and counted out 100 ration cards and gave her. Never during the years of the war did they ever run out of ration cards for Jews seeking help from their family. This is a woman's life who just gave it all, laid it down 
her and her family, so that others might live. Well, what happened was, as the, the story goes on, that she and her sister were both in their 50s during this time, and they were captured by the Nazis eventually, and they were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her sister died while she was in that camp, but amazingly, Corey got released. One week after she got released, every person in that camp that was her age and above, around the 50 mark, if you were middle age in a concentration camp, you weren't worth much. And so you couldn't serve very long. One week after she got released, everyone her age and above were sent to the gas chambers and they were exterminated. She later was told by a guard that there was some clerical error in her paperwork and that she got released by mistake that she should not have gotten released. But God, who was on her side, <laughs> if it had not been for the Lord who was on her side, she would have been swallowed up. After the war, she was a prolific writer and speaker. She led many to Christ, and she died at the ripe old age of 91 in America, having given her life to a cause greater than herself. But you see, I think that there's a disconnect somewhat in stories like this that we share, especially in a public setting, because many times we share about God's help in such a way almost to paint with a broad brush that God always shows up as our protector. God always shows up as our defender and never any harm to befall a Christ follower. But down deep on the inside, we know that's just not reality, is it? Can I tell you that the best stories in life, the best story ever told ends with the hero going to his death? But he rose on the third day. And the best stories that you and I will read end with not always justice, but with the hero many times going to their death. Let me share another testimony with you of Sir Thomas More, maybe a lesser known character. He lived in the 1500s. In 1535, as a social philosopher and author and a statesman, he refused to go along with King Henry VIII's wicked and ungodly deeds. And therefore, because he chose to... Uh, dispute something that the crown had said, he was sentenced to death for treason. His daughter, Meg, uh, was pleading with her father saying, dad, if you just recant, if you just go back on it, just go along with the king, then you can save your life. To which he said, if we lived in a state, my dear, where virtue was profitable and common sense would make us good and saintly, then we would need no heroes. But in fact, we live in a place where adverse anger, envy, pride, sloth, and lust Profit way above humility, chastity, fortitude, and justice. Therefore, I must stand fast a little, even if I must risk being a hero. And in his dying words, Sir Thomas More said this, I died the king's good servant, but God's first. I laid down my life because I would resent the order of the king, yet I was still faithful in all the other ways to the crown, but first and foremost, and above all, I'm faithful to God. I don't know about you, but for me, I would rather it be said, not that I was a good citizen or a loving pastor or a great family man, but that I was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you will put that perspective first, then all those other things will happen as well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All of these other things will be added to you. We hear testimonies. We hear 
recounting of someone's story, and a skepticism centers into our heart. This is the 21st century conditioned mind because we constantly are exposed to paid testimonials. Celebrities who have gotten uh, bigger than life through sports or through academic scholarship and they are paid after their retirement to sponsor items that are proven, they say, to make your life better. You can't live without this product. And if you buy this pill or if you put on this special oil, then every ache and pain you have will go away. And we buy the lie. We buy the product. And to our dismay, it doesn't fix what we wanted it to fix. And so we walk away disillusioned and disconnected and, and wondering, why did I fall for the lie again? In this Christian walk, things don't always turn out our way. And many times, the hero looks bad and the villain ends up looking good. But I want you to see in this psalm the power of just one witness. He said, if it hadn't been for the Lord who was on our side, we might have been swallowed up. Let all of Israel say. It took just one person to start the chain effect of other people saying, yeah, you know what? God's been awfully good to me too. Wait a minute. I may be having a bad day, but I'm not having a bad life because God has shown himself faithful time and time again. And here's what happens is one bold witness stands up to testify for God. Other people say, yeah, me too. You want to talk about the Me Too movement? Me too. God's been good to me too. Any Me Too's out there? God's been good to me too. And now because one person decided to stand up and testify, others are emboldened to share what God has done in their life. And this is how the gospel message gets to the entire world. You know, the gospel message was never intended to get to the entire world through broadcast television or shortwave radio or through massive crusades. Thank God for all of those means and methods. I love every one of them. I'm not casting down on them. But the gospel message was to be transmitted throughout this world as one beggar tells another beggar where to go to find some bread. This is the house of God. And we bring people so that they can find the bread. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And when I tell someone what God has done in my life, they can argue all they want. But a person with an argument is always at the disadvantage of a person with an experience. I have walked this thing. I have experienced this. I have tasted and seen that the Lord, he is good and his mercy endures forever. I can't ever forget it. And he's no respecter of persons. What he's done for me, he will do for you. There are two powerful illustrations in this psalm I want to move on that speak of God's help. The first one is of being swallowed up alive. The second one is of being drowned by a flood. Now let's, let's just deal with this first one here. Being swallowed up alive. People can't swallow other people up alive. So this was obviously a, a projection of their fears into a bigger area. It would be kind of like uh, uh, talking about dragons and bears and lions and tigers and things that are, are somewhat fantastical or larger than life. Now, nobody has ever seen a dragon, but everybody knows that dragons are real. Just ask the five-year-old what's in their closet. They'll convince you that dragons are real. Dragons are a projection 
from the psalmist of their bigger fears, things that, that could befall them, things that could happen to them. It's kind of like, you know, the, the stories we hear about the, uh, Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, right? It's kind of like these things. Here's the thing that always amazes me. Like 25 years ago when I saw those pictures of that grainy guy out there at the edge of the woods, I kind of maybe bought into it. I'm like, yeah, you know, it kind of does look like a Bigfoot. I can kind of see that image there. But nowadays when they show this picture, I just saw one last week of a Bigfoot sighting, right? And the picture was so grainy, I thought to myself, yeah, it's about the picture I saw 25 years ago. But you ain't fooling me because everybody has a camera in their pocket better than anything you had 25 years ago. So, like, why can't I see a picture-perfect, clear image of Bigfoot today? Come on. You know what I mean? We project our fears. And so this is the first illustration of this, like, this big dragon that would, would swallow us up. It's, it's something, anything that may harm us. And, and let's just face it. Fear is natural and normal to the human existence. Fear can be a good protector of us when we respond in a way that, Ooh, I don't think I want to reach out. There might be a snake under that rock. That's kind of a fear that can protect you. A fear of being burned means you, you want to maybe withdraw from that hot flame. But having fear so injected in your heart that you, you lose trust in God is not good because God doesn't want us to be paralyzed by a spirit of fear. He's not given us that, but a, a power, love, and a sound mind. So we have to bring a sound mind and lay it onto these things. We're not going to be swallowed up. Why? Because God is on our side. The second image is of a flood. And what this flood speaks of is like a sudden danger, something that just comes upon you really rapidly. In the Middle East in this day, as they were writing this, uh, you could be walking through a very arid, dry place. But if a rainstorm would come in the rainy season, it could wash out an entire road, it could wash out an entire village. And, and there was no meteorologist to tell you that a storm's coming. You didn't know until the rain started falling. And you better get to high ground when the rain starts falling because a flood can come and sweep you away. They're talking about sudden danger. They're talking about things that are beyond your control. Now I know that we Western Americans like to think that so many things are under our control, but can I tell you really, really, truly, there are very few things under your control. One bad doctor's report, you lose all control. One bad decision in your life and you lose control. You're one choice away from a life that looks totally foreign to the life that you're living. They're talking about sudden calamity. And from their vantage point, this was a very real fear. Let me share this with you. The vantage point you have is not the only vantage point there is. The perspective that you see is not the only perspective available. Because we all look through a lens of some way. It's either a lens of Cynicism, skepticism, hope, fear, joy, peace, 
security, insecurity. We all have these lenses, and sometimes we'll take off the glasses and we'll, we'll put on different glasses, but the vantage point you have is not the only vantage point that there is. That's why it's so vitally important. I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to tell you how much scripture you have to read in a week or make you feel guilty, but here's why it's so vitally important that you get a relationship with this word, because as you read the word of God, the word of God will start reading you, and it'll say, uh, uh-uh, take off that lens, bad perspective. Uh-uh, don't look at that way, bad vantage point. And this book will start to correct your vision. This book will start to bring a layer of security to every insecurity that you have. This book will start speaking peace to fears of your heart. This book will start speaking health to illness and sickness in your life. This is the word of the living God. And it's living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You know what else it can do? It can divide between spirit and flesh. It gets down to the joints and the marrow of the bone. It speaks to us. And then what will happen is as you have a relationship with this word, this word will start speaking out of you. You can only speak out what you've put in. Anybody ever used to play marbles when you were a kid? Take a piece of chalk and draw a big circle? Put all them marbles down in there. Anybody ever do that? Okay, I wasn't the only one that didn't have TV when I grew up. <laughs> That's the amazing thing about Honduras. For hours during this clinic as these parents are getting treated, there were probably 60 kids running all around this, this yard area. It was like the side of a hill. There was no playground. There was no electronics. There was no ball. There was no nothing. They were running around playing. And the parents, they weren't even really caring. They just, they, it's fine. They, they just kept, kept themselves busy. Pretty amazing. But I used to play marbles when I was a kid. And see, you thought I forgot about that, didn't you? <laughs> and I got back on. Drew a big circle, put all those marbles. Then you had the big marble. What's that? The, the shooter? The shooter marble. You'd take that marble, that big one, you'd throw it into that circle, and you'd try to knock out some of those small marbles right beyond the line. You'd count how many you got. Reading the word of God in your life, if your life is a circle, reading the word of God is like pouring in marbles in your life. And the right time will come when the Holy Spirit, like a shooter marble, will come and he'll knock one of those marbles out and you'll say something to a friend and you'll, you'll feel really good about it. You'll walk away and say, where in the world did that come from? <laughs> because God will access what you've put in. This is coming from a heart of a person whose vantage point was right. They were fixed upon God. This isn't a psalm about a person who had a carefree life. You could tell me about your storied upbringing and your, your inheritance and, and how uh, prim and proper that you were and your upbringing that, that was just perfect. And I'm like, yeah, that was nice. But that's not the testimony of me. That's not the testimony of most people I know. That's not real. This is not a psalm of a person who had no troubles. This is the testimony of a person who has been through hell and high water and they're on the other side to tell him God has been faithful. God is good. God can be trusted. What he's done for me, he can do for you. Standing on the other side to tell about it. Notice also that this is not a psalm about a person who testifies to how big the dragon is and how big the flood is. When we get to the end of this psalm, what their focus is on is how big God is. And that's where we need to center our life. When we deal with things, they are the largest to us. 
We feel like we're the only ones going through it. I sympathize with that. I feel that same way many times myself. But when we start to reflect on the stories of others, we realize we're not all that special of a case. We're not all that uncommon after all. Other people have been where we are and they have made it through. And this is a Psalm of someone who said, God stayed to help in your time of need. Verse seven talks about the fowler. Verse seven says this, it says, we have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare was broken and we have escaped. Now, I had to look up the word fowler. I mean, I kind of get in the context of the sentence what it probably means, but I'm not very familiar with the word fowler. Is that a word that you used last week? Anybody use the word fowler last week? Any scholars out there? Well, the fowler of the bird. I had to look it up. And a fowler is a professional bird catcher. Now, I'm not talking about pigeons and turtle doves. I'm talking about birds of game, like a turkey, like a duck, like something that you could... If you catch it, that you could eat it. Like these people lived off the land. A fowler was a professional net layer to lay down a net, to cover it over, to trap an unsuspecting bird as its prey. The other thing they would do is they would build a little box and they would put some seed in that box or they would put a treat or a snack or something that a turkey would like so that when the turkey got near, they could pull the cord and the box would fall. Or they would have some men sitting right around the edge of that net with maybe some spears. This was days before guns. Like they didn't, they didn't have a way to go from a long distance to catch these birds. And so they were very clever in how they would catch these birds. And the psalmist is saying, I was like, let me think, a bird that escaped the snare of a fowler. Now, this was a pretty amazing thing because these fowlers being professional, this was their livelihood. They didn't let many birds off the hook. There weren't many times that a bird would escape, but every now and then their plot would fail and the bird would escape. And so this was a story that they could tell time and again if a bird would escape. But the most devious way in which a fowler would catch other birds is that they would find a little nest of chicklets. They would get into that little nest of a bird and they would raise up that bird from a very small young age and the human hand would get the smell of that bird and that bird would become domesticated. And that bird would then become a pet to the fowler, whereby the fowler could take that little bird as it would grow just a little bit and place it in the net as a ploy, as a tactic to chirp and to cry out for help. And other birds, unsuspecting, would get interested in the cry for help, and they would go to see what's happening, and they were caught in the snare. Don't think that every person who comes in your life was sent there in order to be a blessing. There are some people crying out, and you should help anybody that you want to help. Anybody you can help, you should help them. Thank God for, for Kelly is Kelly back here? Is that Kelly? I can't see very good. Kelly Fitzgerald. Interfaith Hospitality was this week. We had, we had IHN for everyone who volunteered, everyone who helped. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It is a huge blessing to our community that you help out. And when you see Kelly, thank her. She puts her heart and soul into it. Help out anybody that is in, in your means to help. You should help out everybody. But be careful because our enemy, Satan, 
is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And sometimes he'll bring a ploy into your life, and it may come through the activity of a person. Remember, people aren't your enemy, but they can be influenced. They can be domesticated. They can be brought up into the wrong household in the wrong way, and they can be placed somewhere to snare you. And so the fowler, in devious way, would use a bird's own relative to snatch away a bird. But here's what the psalmist said, God is so good, God is my help, that like a bird that has escaped the snare of a fowler, I have been set free. When you say yes to Jesus, I don't care how many curses have been set against you prior, Jesus' name cancels every curse in your life. His blood sets us free. I like how Eugene Peterson put it. He says, faith develops out of the most difficult aspects of our existence, not out of the easiest. Read that a second. Faith develops out of the most difficult aspects of our existence, not when times are easy. You know, the most growth that you will have, you look back on your life, the most growth you have is when you're challenged the most. I had a sixth grade teacher and I couldn't stand this teacher because she challenged me so much. My reading level was, before I got there, some of you, some of you teachers recognize this, I was in the Reading Rainbows program. And that sounded pretty good until I realized the Reading Rainbows program wasn't about rainbows and puppy dogs. It was around people who couldn't read. I went out to a certain class because I had a deficiency in reading. And I had come out of that program and I met this sixth grade teacher and she said, you're gonna learn how to read this year at a level with everybody else in sixth grade. Well, I didn't believe her. I hadn't been able to read very good up to that point. You know what I used to do for book reports? I know none of you have done this. I used to read the back introduction and write my entire paper and just make up a bunch of fluff around it. I know you have a hard time believing I make up anything like fluff and stuff, but like I just embellished, but that's what I did. But they caught on to it. I mean, they, they were wiser to it than I was. And this teacher challenged me and challenged me. And you know what? At first, I resented that challenge. At first, I resented the resistance. I, I didn't like it that she was always on my case, that she's always making me read it again and do it again and extra homework. I thought she was being mean to me. But can I tell you, by the end of sixth grade, I wasn't reading at a sixth grade level. I was above the sixth grade level. She challenged me. She applied the pressure to me, and I grew as a result of it. Despise not the chastening of the Lord as though some strange thing has happened to you because the Lord loves those whom he chastens. God is challenging you today. It's because he loves you. It's because he knows there's something better in you. It's because he knows that there's a treasure in you that can only be brought out with pressure. You can go out and you can find common coal anywhere. Just go grab a piece of coal. But you can't find diamonds just laying out in the grass. But if you take a piece of coal and you put it under pressure and time and pressure and time and pressure and time, eventually, you know what happens to that piece of coal? They tell me it turns into a diamond. I believe them. And as God applies the pressure to your life, as God takes you through a season of time and you don't want to wait because you're not patient, you're like me, you know, Lord, I want patience, but I want it now. But time and pressure creates the best aspects of our life. I'll close with this. There are two things that we have to do continually as Christ follower. And I think it's laid out here in this text. Is that 
we have to lay it down and we have to pick it up. Now, I know that seems like a contradiction in terms, but just follow me here for a second. You and I must continually fight the urge, and a strong urge it is, to take matters into our own hands. Now, I'm a fixer. I like to fix it. There's a problem. I see the solution. I want to fix it. Don't tell me about the birth pains. Just show me the baby. I just want to fix it. Let's just fix this thing. But we have to continually fight the urge to take matters into our own hands. Because as long as we are our problem solver, God's sitting on the sidelines saying, go ahead, go ahead, have at it. So we have to lay it down. There's many ways we do this. One of the ways I find that I can do this is when I come to the altar for prayer. You see, coming to the altar should never be a, a symbol of shame or they're going to think I'm sinning. They already think it anyway. Let them think what they want. But coming to the altar for me is like symbolically I'm laying something down. Even if it's just I'm laying me down before God, I'm just laying something down to the Lord. We have to continue to lay it down. But then once we've laid it down, there's something we need to pick up. We must continually every single day pick up our cross, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Hear me. I didn't say pick up the cross of Jesus. You can't take Jesus' cross. He already did that. But you have a cross. I have a cross. I don't know what your cross is. Your cross may be a long-term illness or disease. You just can't understand why that you're having to suffer with that affliction. Maybe it's a cross. It may be a broken relationship. It may be a, a hardship, a financial burden. It may be a struggle of your mind. It, it, your, your cross may be the loss of someone that you dearly love. Whatever that cross is, we have to lay down at the altar. We have to lay down to God our life as we think it should be and take up our cross and follow him. Because whoever lays down their life will find it but whoever tries in every clever way to keep their life will eventually lose it. Am I telling you the truth? It's true. So we must lay down and pick it up. Pick up our cross and follow Jesus. In summation, here's what the Psalm says. God's strong name is our help. God's strong name is our help. None of the other things that the world has to offer can help me like God can. I'm thankful for these other things. I like having running water. I like having indoor plumbing. I'm so thankful to be an American citizen and have the protections of this great land and the freedoms that we've been afforded. But nothing can help me like God's strong name. And then it goes on and it says, the God, the same God, the very one who made heaven and earth, so if he made everything, including us, then he knows us better than anyone and he can care for us better than anyone. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I just wonder today if you would reflect on the great help of God. If you're in this place and you've never accepted the help of God through the salvation of Jesus Christ freely offered on the cross, then today is your day to say yes to Jesus 
and to accept God's help in your life. If you're in this place and, and you say, Pastor, I've been serving Jesus for a long time, but I just don't feel like God's very close. Well, I wanna tell you today, God is very near. God is close to the brokenhearted. God loves you today. You need to know that. You need to hear that. I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for you and I wanna pray with you that you would accept the help of God today and stop trying to chart your own course. Father, for every person under the sound of my voice, I thank you that they would come and gather in this place to receive a word from your word today. God, not my words that have been said, but the words that you've spoken to their hearts. We thank you for the interventions that you've made, the blessings that you have bestowed, the hearts that you have warmed, the minds that you have changed, the problems that you have solved and the direction that you have given. God, thank you for being with your people. We reverence you and we honor you in this place. And we say together, if the Lord had not been on our side, we'd have been swallowed up. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.